Hey, this is Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I tell you that's a pity, cause I can't get enough. We have that fairly instinctually for others, but we don't have it so instinctively for ourselves. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. Kristen Neff, the person perhaps most responsible for researching the effects of self-compassion. Self-compassion isn't really a judgment or evaluation at all. It's just simply the process of being kind and supportive and caring toward ourselves. She's the author of the 2011 best-selling book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and her newest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. When we struggle or when we make mistakes, just showing ourselves the same kindness and compassion that we would naturally show to someone we cared about. Kristen and I talk about what she calls fierce self-compassion and how anger can be compassionate. And by the way, compassionate anger can be a life-changing concept. She uses the example of the Me Too movement, but notes just how hard it is not to veer into destructive, punitive anger, the kind of anger we're probably most familiar with. In fact, it just depends. Is the anger alleviating suffering or causing suffering? As long as the anger doesn't dehumanize anyone and doesn't slip into causing harm. And by the way, it's not easy to do. It's easy to slip. Why are men better at self-compassion than women? So women score a lot higher in compassion for others than men do. I asked Kristen if the fact that women tend to score lower than men on self-compassion has an impact on the salary gap between men and women. Spoiler alert, it does. It's mainly because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs. Is there a link between so-called compulsive caretaking of others and autoimmune disorders and some forms of cancer? It's not that caring for others is bad for you at all. It's that if you care for others and not for yourself, if it's really unbalanced, if you're also criticizing yourself or feeling inadequate, that's really where the harm to health comes. Kristen leads us in a really great self-compassion meditation, and I ask her about the infectious positivity and compassion of the television series character, Ted Lasso, played by Jason Sudeikis. It's a little bit like Mr. Rogers, who is fascinating, because we do know from the research that compassion is contagious. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. This is episode 16 of season three. Kristen Neff, fierce self-compassion. I'm human. I can still be kind and supportive to myself, even if I'm not perfect. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. 
Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com. Check out the courses and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Kristen Neff is an associate professor in the University of Texas at Austin's Department of Educational Psychology. She has written over 50 academic articles and book chapters on the topic of self-compassion and has been cited almost 35,000 times by other scholars, in part for her creation of a psychological testing scale to measure self-compassion about 20 years ago. She's the author of the best-selling 2011 book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and her newest book is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Kristen Neff, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here on The Soul of Life. I'm really excited to to speak with you. You've, uh, gosh, going back early in my career as a social worker, I remember it seemed like back in the days when, when I guess, you know, really Brene Brown was really just getting into her full stride and and she was speaking a lot about your work and that's how I first came to know you and so many people probably as well since then and all these years people are familiar with self-esteem but this wasn't always the case I'm curious if you can maybe start us off with talking about self-esteem what's the difference between the self-esteem and self-compassion and and maybe why are we are we worse off for for having this and all this knowledge of self-esteem out there no, so there's nothing wrong with self-esteem. If you think of self-esteem as a positive judgment of worth, right? Usually people judge themselves as a good, worthy person or a bad, unworthy person. And, it, you know, it's, it's good to have high self-esteem. Uh, the problem is how do you get it, right? So a lot of people feel good about themselves, um, well, because they're special and above average. You know, it's not okay to be average, which is a problem because by definition, we are average. So a lot of it's built on social comparison. How do I stack up compared to him or her? And it, that can lead to disconnection. Um, another real uh, potential downfall of self-esteem is that it's, it's contingent. You know, it's a fair weather friend. It's there for you when you succeed or when people like you or when you look the way you want to look. But what happens when that's not the case, right? That we feel badly about ourselves. So self-compassion isn't really a judgment or evaluation at all. It's just simply the process of being kind and supportive and caring toward ourselves. When we struggle or when we make mistakes, we're feeling inadequate in some way, just showing ourselves the same kindness and compassion that we would naturally show to someone we cared about. Uh, and so you might say it's a more stable friend, right? It's there for us when we succeed, but it's especially when we fail or something really difficult happens, we say, well, that's okay. I'm human. You know, I, I can still be kind and supportive to myself, even if I'm not perfect. That sounds uh, comforting to me as I hear that, because I know there's probably an infinite amount of times during the day, moments during the day when it seems like I'm just bombarded with things that are happening or, you know, my, my let alone my internal experience has so many different flavors and and aspects to it, you're kind of saying that there's is almost an eternal quality to self-compassion and self-esteem has more of a, a a limited gas tank. Yeah. And also self-esteem is focused on the self. It's a judgment of the self. Ironically, even though the word self and self-compassion, it's not actually self-focused, right? The idea is um, we treat, we include ourselves in the circle of compassion 
we're warm and kind and supportive to any human being who's struggling, including ourselves, right? So it's, you could just call it inner compassion as well as outer compassion, but you don't need to judge the self, evaluate the self. You don't need to figure out if you're a good or bad person. You know, it's just like, okay, I'm struggling. How can I support myself in this moment? Just like we would to a child or a, a, a good friend. Right, right. You're reminding me that that our field has shifted away from this idea of self as sort of the ego, as if as if it is the 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 container of everything, into more of a compassionate sense of kind of a spiritual sense. I'm a I'm a practitioner of IFS, internal family systems. Yes. You're probably familiar with that. Very familiar, which is yeah. Very popular right now. Yeah. And what's wonderful about that is they have this term called the self, which people who, especially in you know maybe conservative Christian traditions may hear that and say, well, that sounds like that's the opposite of a spiritual thing. Self is, you know, in, in Christian traditions is thought of as something you want to make yourself less full of yourself and then you become spiritual. But you know, in psychology now we're seeing this movement towards self being a spiritual quality. It doesn't mean selfish at all. Well, I, I'm sorry. I am good friends with Dick. I get him on this one. I think that was a really poor choice of words <laughs> stated. <laughs> you shouldn't call it self. You know, you call it like compassionate self or universal self or something. To my point of view, it's confusing, but the concept's great. And also the reason I love self internal family systems is also recognizes that we have different selves. There is no one unitary self. So, and similarly, you could call it selves compassion. (laughs) It's not like there has to be a self in order to give ourselves compassion. In fact, inner self-compassion, inner compassion would probably be a more accurate term, but it's a little awkward. But it's really just directing compassion inward toward whatever sense of self or selves are arising, whatever internal battles going on inside. Um, it's warmth, kindness, support, and really important concern with the alleviation of suffering. It's the motivation to help in some way. And it's funny, we have that fairly instinctually for others, but we don't have it so instinctively for ourselves. And we actually need to practice it. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying about the the naming convention. Uh, I, I've I've teased Dick before about how even calling it internal family systems oh, is also, confusing. Yeah, but you know, whatever <laughs> you know, it works. So you know, works. the language isn't the best, but it, you know, it's yeah. it's too late now. So there you go. That's right. No, it's a wonderful <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. So my latest book is called Fierce Self Compassion, partly because I was finding people would think that self compassion is only tender. It can be tender. There's a real kind of gentle, soft, nurturing quality to self-compassion, which is about self-acceptance. And you might think of that as, you know, a parent, even if their child's screaming their head off, they still love their child. It's like unconditionally accepting. And you might try to soothe that child, calm that child. But that's not all that parenting's about or all that compassion's about. Sometimes it needs to be fierce. Sometimes it's protective. You know, drawing boundaries, saying no, standing up to harm, speaking up. Or it means, you know, taking our needs seriously and actually doing something about them, actually taking active steps to fulfill ourselves and also motivating change. You know, we we want to accept ourselves, but we don't want to accept all our behaviors or all the situations we find ourselves in. You know, change is also part of being self-compassionate. So it really just highlights that there are at least the two faces of self-compassion, the fierce and tender. And it's kind of like yin and yang. You know, we need both. And in fact, when when we don't have that both and they're really out of balance, it can lead to problems. We can either become complacent if there's not enough fierceness 
or we could be aggressive or just constantly striving on the go if we're, you know, to have enough tender acceptance. So it's slightly different lens through which to see what well-being looks like. I, I really love that, Kristen, because it, it, it really, it melds so much with my, my direct experience of, of what I would call kind of a spiritualizing kind of um, people that are well-trained and, um, I, you know, in religious or even spiritual practices have kind of you sometimes you, I don't know if you've encountered this, but sometimes this sort of a mindset, almost like a mantra when it comes towards something really difficult, like it's, this is okay. When in fact, what's, what's going on inside is screaming at them and yelling and it's, it's ugly and it's messy and it's, it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like a big part of my book is about anger. And I think sometimes we think, you know, for spiritual or for psychologically well, we shouldn't be angry or we need to somehow be, just be, be mindful of our anger. The anger is a bad thing. Uh, well, in fact, it just depends. Is the anger alleviating suffering or causing suffering? If it's alleviating suffering, for instance, I personally, I think um, the Me Too movement is a really good example. Women, for many years, we, we weren't allowed to get angry. Oh, that's just the way men are. And it wasn't until we were angry and said, you know, no, we aren't going to take it anymore. That things started to change. And that was, from my point of view, a movement toward compassion. So there is a place for anger, as long as the anger doesn't dehumanize anyone and also is aimed at preventing harm and doesn't slip into causing harm. And by the way, it's not easy to do. It's easy to slip. But that's, but that's when we get the tender self-compassion and say, okay, I got it wrong. I'm so sorry. You know, um, but there's a role for all of our emotions. It's, it's about the goal. Are we, are we helping or harming? That's the ultimate litmus test. Right. Right. And, it, and you're even asking a question in that. It sounds like curiosity is, is some sort of, it's, it's, it's a necessary ingredient to, to be sort of checking. What is it now? Exactly. What is it now? What What do I need? What does the situation need? What's right in the situation? Trying not to get too rigid about, you know, I'm right, you're wrong or any of those things, you know. So, so mindfulness, mindfulness and self-compassion are sister constructs. Cause at least from my point of view, you can't have self-compassion without mindfulness. You might say you can't really have an open heart if your mind's not open also. Because then, you know, self-love, does that slip into narcissism, right? It could, or self-pity, or some of those unhealthy states. But mindfulness gives us balance of perspective. Uh, But mindfulness isn't enough without the warmth, right? We also need that quality of heart. And, you know, people like John Kabat-Zinn, he would say, well, that's already in mindfulness. And maybe it is, but not a lot of people necessarily practice it that way. So this just makes it explicit. We need to explicitly bring in the warmth and the kindness. And by the way, sometimes that warmth is actually heat. <laughs> sometimes it's fierceness. Sometimes what we need is protection, like mama bear, fierce mama bear. It's not always soft and gentle, the warmth. Um, and so really just realizing that it's not a set way of being. It's a set of principles. What do I need right now to help myself and to alleviate suffering? Are you finding your message about bringing that warmth in uh, to some of these spiritual practices, which have been around for a while? You mentioned John Kabat-Zinn. I mean, it's yes. well established. There's a, there's a, you know, even though it's relatively recent history here in the U.S., but it's a well-established spiritual community. What's the reception of your message been like? Well, it's it's right now. It's very positive. I must admit, when I first started, we had to fight and scrap for our place at the table. I think some of the mindfulness people kind of said, "Well, what's this?" Or it's already there. Sounds too woo woo or too hearts and flowersy. 
But then after enough hard empirical data started emerging and plus um, the experience of what happens when you explicitly teach people to be more self-compassionate, like put your hand on your heart and speak to yourself like a good friend. That's different than just make space for it with warmth. You know what I mean? It's like, the, it's really practical. Self-compassion from my point of view, it's practical. It's hands-on. What do I actually need to do that's going to help the most in this situation? And I think now people, most people have come around and that <laughs> we have a place at the table, which is great. Um, cause it's all, you know, really, I think any, I shouldn't say this, but most spiritual traditions are about the heart, right? There are a few, you know, and if you look at the origins of mindfulness, kind of Theravada and Buddhism, it does tend to be on the dry side. It just happened to emerge from a tradition that's a little bit dry, you know. But now I think it's getting more juicy. <laughs> Not only loving kindness meditation, but like again, real compassion practices, drawing more on the Tibetan traditions, which tend to be a little more juicy, for instance. Um, and, but I think it's there. For instance, I taught a group of uh, Catholic nuns, self-compassion ones, and they just said, Oh, yes, of course. And they totally got it. This is just Jesus talking to me. So they didn't, they didn't give themselves compassion, but they used Jesus is a vehicle to give themselves compassion and it worked just great. So I, d I don't think it's foreign to most religious traditions. It's just maybe packaged in a slightly different way. Right. I was, uh, you just reminded me, I, I just did an interview with a Trappist uh, monk who happens to be the brewmaster of the only Trappist monastery that's brewing beer in the United States uh -huh. up in my hometown of Spencer, Massachusetts. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, that people, people, think they're coming for the beer but they're coming for us yes how funny <laughs> they're coming for this this uh, this lifestyle and they're really curious about do you really get up at 3 30 in the morning to pray uh -huh. and find your center and find god and he said yes you know so and then we go brew some beer yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> if you can package that in a bottle that's that's mm -hmm. what people are looking for um and you're following uh, speaking of, I guess, brewing or kind of working on things, you're, you're following the data. You've been doing this for a long time as a researcher. Is it, is it ever contradictory to you or ever feel hard to reconcile sort of the research science edge of your work and also sort of the, the interpersonal nature of teaching and. Yeah. So, you know, I developed a scale and I do psychometrics and I've done the, the hard research, but. But the last 10 years, I've really been focused on teaching people how to be more self-compassionate. I teamed up with a, a close colleague, his name is Chris Germer, who was someone who had been really important in terms of bringing mindfulness into psychotherapy. And he was all about the practice. He actually said to me, Kristen, your research is great, but it's not enough. You know, you got to go beyond that and actually figure out how to teach people to be self-compassionate. So we teamed up and, you know, we developed a program that's taught all around the world. And that's really, to me, where the, where it's why it's most important. It's not just a good idea. It's not just an interesting scientific topic. It's something that people can actually do. And it does change people's lives. It really does. I mean, that's not an overstatement. And again, it's not me who changes people's lives. It's their own heart that changes their own lives. You know, when they, when they're able to access their own heart through practices that aren't, that aren't ethereal, it's not esoteric, it's really simple, really straightforward. It makes a big difference. And, and that's really what excites me more than anything, I have to say. Do you, do you see um, differences between men and women when it comes to measuring? And, and I'm just curious, how you how do you measure that? 
please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up, or write a positive review. Yeah, so so I created a scale to measure self-compassion. It's kind of just base ballot items, you know, how often you tend to be hard on yourself or warm to yourself or, you know, feel isolated or feel connected or mindful or not. Um, so that's one way we, we look at it. And, and, and another thing we do increasingly is we, we have people write a paragraph to themselves, being mindful of their pain, remembering they aren't alone and writing words of kindness or even self-compassion training. So those are the main ways we do it. Uh, but what we do find is there's a small but consistent gender difference, uh, which actually favors men. So even though compassion is part of the female gender role, and even though I would say at least 80 to 90% of any audience I talk to or teach to are women, because men think it's a girl thing, you know, compassion. And nonetheless, women are a little lower. It's not huge, but it is consistent. It's mainly because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs. Right. So women score a lot higher in compassion for others than men do, but a little bit lower in self-compassion. And I do think it's because women are raised to be self-sacrificing. So you might say the blocks to self-compassion are different. So for women, it's a, that it's selfish. For men, it's the fear that it's weak. Um, and also the reason I wrote my book, Fierce Self-Compassion for Women, is that I think that's where the gender differences really come into play. Men are, they're allowed to be fierce. They're allowed to be active. They're allowed to be powerful. But if they're tender, they get called names, you know, and that harms men because it cuts them off from a really important and useful emotional resource of self-compassion. Women, on the other hand, they're allowed to be tender, well, toward others, not themselves, but at least toward others. But they aren't allowed to be fierce or God forbid angry, right? And that can cut off women from that side of their nature. And that it's not only that they aren't allowed to be that way, society sanctions them if they're too angry, if they're too fierce or too powerful. So that's why women in a way, they, the, the, the way the blocks to fierce and tender self-compassion are different for men and women, you know, given traditional gender role socialization, uh, which is why I wrote the book just for women. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder if you're seeing um, figures come, you know, male figures emerge, uh, you know, to sort of speak to that. There's, you know, obviously people like, you know, Dan Harris has talked about yes. kind of, you know, this fear he had of losing his edge coming, coming out and talking about the struggle that he had that led him to, you know, get into mindfulness. Yeah. Well, now he's a self-compassion convert. I worked on for several years now. Yeah. <laughs> his new books about self-compassion is like, yes. <laughs> You've done it. But, he, but again, gender role socialization is playing a role. You know, it just seems like it seems weak. It seems soft, even though the research shows it is one of the most powerful sources of coping and resilience we have available to us. You know, what a shame that people don't have access to it because they're afraid it goes against prescribed gender roles. You know. Is there something, do you think, to this? I know, you know, one of my, the people I learned from many years ago, Stephen Stosny used to teach, you know, and sort of, I think he was sort of reclaiming it. He, he came from a, an older era in psychology also, but I think he was sort of reclaiming the, the science about, you know, gender differences, physiological differences. A person who has a higher testosterone in their body is going to have a harder time kind of settling down or trusting their own emotions, or at least that's what we used to tell ourselves. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Stephen Stosny, he was one of the pioneers. I mean, I actually talk about him in my first book. There wasn't, there weren't a lot of people writing about this and he actually won, was one who did write about this. So you know, hats off to him. Great, great scholar. Um, you know, the thing about testosterone and, um, oxytocin, 
there, there probably is some biological role that's being played. I don't want to say this none. That would be foolish. But we also know, for instance, if you have a woman fire someone, her testosterone levels go up. Or if you have a man cuddle a baby, his oxytocin levels go up. So you can't fully separate the situations we're in, the activities we do, gender role socialization from our actual biology as well. You know, so it's not the case that men somehow they can't do it because of their testosterone or that women, you know, can't be fierce because of their, their, um, oxytocin. Like, for instance, like oxytocin is also why mama bears are so fierce. So a lot of these hormones also play dual roles. So I think we kind of oversimplified things when we said it was one or the other. It's very, very complex. And to the extent that there are differences, they aren't, it's not apples and oranges. It's like just, it just shades variations. And I think, I think you can definitely say that all people need both yin and yang. You know, how, how it manifests is going to look different. Whether that's within the genders or between the genders, there's actually all the research shows there's more within gender variation than there is between gender variation. So I, you know, the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing isn't really hasn't really held up empirically. Right, right, right. Yeah, maybe it's our our attention span that's shifting, and and we're as we as we get a hold of different pieces of the puzzle, um, where there's so much to learn. Can you can you say? Something about how this conversation about self-compassion, does it have an impact on salaries? I mean, you're, you're saying, you're, you're saying it, you know, women are perceived a certain way. Men are expected to be in certain roles and not expected to be self-compassionate. Um, how does that affect what we might earn in the business? Well, you know, the, now I'm drawing this more from the, the research on agency and communion, which is, which is very similar to fierce and tender self-compassion. You know, the tenderness is where the communion, the nurturing, the agency is where the active fear side. And again, remember both of them when they're harnessed for the alleviation of suffering are forms of self-compassion. So women are in a double bind because to succeed in the business world, to negotiate for your salary, you've got to be assertive. You know, they got to think you're competent. Uh, if you just take two resumes, exactly the same, except one's named Steve and one's named Andrea. Steve is perceived as more competent. They recommend a higher salary for him. You know, and if, and if Andrea goes in and she's just as assertive and competent as Steve, people don't like her. Because we don't, you know, look, look at Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. They had to apologize for being so fierce. There's backlash for women who are too fierce. Luckily, what research also shows is it helps for women if they try to explicitly and kind of obviously balance the two. So if you're like assertive, but also say, and by the way, how are your kids? You know, so if you kind of bring in the warmth and the communion along with the agency, it helps. It's, it's unfair because men don't have to do that, but that's just kind of where we are. But yeah, so, you know, and one of the things about self-compassion is it's, it makes you brave because people may not like you as much if you stand up for yourself as a woman. They would really prefer that you're just meek and compliant and say, yes, I'd love to help. Of course, you know, but the thing is, is with self-compassion, you aren't so dependent on other people liking you. You also can like yourself. Your sense of worth isn't contingent on social approval the way it is often. And that gives you real freedom to really say, well, what do I need to be happy? You know, not what do I need to make other people like me? And that, that really helps a lot. Right, right. No, and it sounds like you're saying that it's not just a matter of, of, of being kind to yourself and kind of being silent about it. It's, it's sort of that, that practice of being 
kind and compassionate to yourself will produce almost like a fruit of fierceness if, if needed. It produces that energy when you need it, but it's, you're not going to be sort of pushing it on to people aggressively. Right. And, and by the way, it's easy to get out of balance. It's, it's easy when you're angry to forget that these are the people are human beings. Um, and so it's, it's more like, you know, the metaphor I like to say is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. The goal isn't to get it right. It's just to open your heart and open your mind and accompany yourself on the journey of life with the resource of compassion by your side. And that's really what we're after. And, um, you know, it, it helps. It helps to practice them explicitly, but you'll still get it wrong. I still get it wrong all the time. And that seems to be really the point is that it's not about getting it right, but it's about noticing what's happening and then. That's right. And continually. And maybe what you needed five minutes ago is different than what you need in this moment. And so that flexibility of, you know, what do I need to be healthy and well? It's going to give you a, a, a wide ability to, to deal with the array of personalities as well. People that are constantly needing adjustments, high, high maintenance people, right? Because ultimately we're the most high maintenance. That's right. Well, and also our different parts, right? So, so we have some wounded parts of ourselves that mainly need tender acceptance. We have other parts of ourselves that need kind of more of that fierceness or that encouragement or to go out into the world. You know, it's, it's very complicated in there and very out complicated there. In it's there. complicated. Yeah. It's a mess. That's okay. It's a mess. Well, if, if it's a compassionate well, mess, it's good enough. What happens, Kristen, in the body when this mess doesn't get paid attention to? And I want to ask you about Gabor Mate, who, you know, has this book called When the Body Says No. And I think everybody should read it. Everybody should know about this, this work. I think he has an HBO special. I, Gabor Mate has this book called When the Body Says No. And he talks about how our immune system, now he's a physician. He talks about how the immune system shuts down when it's in a state of stress because of, of course, these things like cortisol, things like the steroids that we get when our body is, uh, in, in, the, you know, experiencing some disease, we get injections of steroids. You know, in, in the book, he talks about this idea that the body shuts down in response to stress, especially chronic stress that, that, you know, he finds in people that, uh, perhaps have a caregiving role and he calls it even kind of a compulsive caregiving towards others. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's even hard for me to say this, but he, because I'm afraid of pissing people off, right? There's my caretaking parts coming out, but you know, he will say that there's a link in the science and the literature between people who have these personality traits and their susceptibility to cancer. Now, it's never to say that we're blaming people for getting cancer, my goodness, but that if we follow the data, there are there seems to be some link between the expressions of these traits of repressing anger and caretaking of others. Do you have any experience with that sort of thing? Well, um, what I do know in the self-compassion literature is there definitely is a link between self-compassion versus self-criticism and physiological functioning, right? So the more self-critical you are, you know, the less self-compassionate you are, um, the higher your cortisol levels, uh, inflammation, suppression of immune function, um, more aches and pains and colds, right? As your immune system starts working less, you sleep worse. Whereas if you're more compassionate, right, you've got more heart rate variability, less, less cortisol, um, more, more parasympathetic activation of, of, you know, where you feel kind of calm and safe. You sleep better. You have fewer aches and pains and colds. So, you know, I, it's certainly to some extent working through the automatic nervous system, parasympathetic and, and sympathetic activity, which of course is tied to all these. It's, it's so complex in there. 
but we know that self-compassion is good for physical health to the point where we know this, you know, I think it's small, but like a 30 effect size is, is a small, but like 0.30, something like that on physical health with self-compassion, which is important. You know, longer telomere length, for instance, the more self-compassion you have. So, and, and in terms of people who care for others, what I don't know his data exactly, but I would suspect it's not that caring for others is bad for you at all. It's that if you care for others and not for yourself, if it's really unbalanced, if you're also criticizing yourself or feeling inadequate, that's really where the harm to health comes. Caring for others, you know, so for instance, compassion in the brain actually is rewarding emotion. Compassion is good for us. So what he's talking about isn't compassion. He's talking about some sort of belittling the self or devaluing the self. And that's really what's harmful. Yeah. Almost like a disappearance or a numbing. Right. That that's some sort of freeze response could be involved or dissociation involved. Um, right. So, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat to me, at least scary. It feels like, wow, it's such a, such a powerful set of chemistry that we have access to in our body and how much we need to respect that and take care of it. But the good um, news about that, uh, the link is that it, one of the easiest ways to give yourself compassion is through physical touch. You know, we really, we really promote that because you can feel it. You know, if you put your hands on your heart or your face or just some warm, supportive touch, because we're so designed by evolution to respond to touch um, as a signal of care and it changes our physiology, right? A child, an infant who doesn't, isn't touched won't develop. So you can use that as a way to give yourself compassion. You can feel it almost immediately. So, and that's really helpful. The fact that, you know, again, it's not rocket science. You don't have to get in a state of samadhi or something like that to give yourself compassion. You just put your hand on your heart with some warmth. It's easy. It's very accessible. You mentioned the heart rate variability. I literally have my, it's not the M wave anymore, but they, they have the app for, for heart math, which I, I don't hear get talked about a lot anymore, but it used to be a big thing. Oh yeah. Because, because it's because they never did research on it and they kept it all proprietary. And it's like, well, how sh- why should we believe you if you don't publish your research? It wasn't open source. <laughs> mm. But do you think it was a good cause and, and, and worthy? It's right? like if it's, if it helps people. You should try to make it as freely available as possible. That's my point of view. That's kind of yeah. My... And then and then you'll get the feedback you need. You still learn money, but you know what I mean. It's like it shouldn't be like copyright. Under you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's still out there. And I, it, anyway, the practice is to give your attention to your heart during deep breathing and to bring up some positive memory, which you know, which is sounds a little bit oversimplistic. Yeah. Um. But you know, apparently has some, you know, it's biofeedback. And as, as Bessel van der Kolk told me recently, that's something that is just, we're just not even scratching the surface with the power of biofeedback. Yeah, no, th- th- that's true. I mean, and biofeedback is a real thing. So yeah. 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 Seeing it is believing it. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I, I struggled Kristen, and when I started this podcast, it was an outgrowth really of starting to realize what I needed to do to open myself up more and, you know, be more open about who I am as a person, not just be in my professional office treating people and working with people privately, but, you know, admit to what, what I was going through. And it was a form of depression and it's still part of a journey for me that I, and I struggle with talking about needing help and 
and working with parts of me that that won't open up and say that they're actually going through something. I'm wondering about your own experience of this research. Has it been personal for you? Have you ever found yourself relating to some of these, uh, the things that you're seeing in the research about people that aren't self-compassionate? Um, yeah, well, if you read any of my books, you'll see they're just full of personal stories, right? You know, and I, I, I don't pretend to have it all together. I, I give a lot of concrete examples of what happened when I lacked self-compassion and how self-compassion helped me. Um, it's really personal. As a matter of fact, my teaching style is basically just to be myself <laughs> and see what happens. Um, yeah, a- absolutely. I, again, it's primarily a personal practice for me. The research comes second. I don't approach it from an abstract intellectual point of view. I, I approach it as a person who's a human being who's flawed, who gets wrong all the time, sees how the practice helps, and then I research. <laughs> There's a character that's very popular right now on TV, uh, Ted Lasso, and his character is kind of this mashup of Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, the sort of do-gooder, Mr. Nice Guy, Oakley Doakley, and what I would say George W. Bush, this sort of aw shucks, get her done sort of positivity. But without spoiling it, the show follows, you know, his adventures. He's this small time college football coach from Kansas, and he's hired to become a major soccer, professional soccer coach in England. He's got no experience coaching soccer. Um, so, but he responds to anim- animosity from others with this relentless kind of compassion. And it's, and it's very infectious. It's, it's hilarious, of course. Um, have you ever considered just studying the Ted Lasso effect of people watching Ted Lasso? <laughs> I haven't. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a kind of, little bit, a little bit like, I haven't seen that show, by the way. It's on my to watch list. It's a little bit like Mr. Rogers, who is fascinating, you know, and if you think about it, um, it makes sense because we do know from the research that compassion is contagious and also self-compassion is contagious, right? So like there's a study, for instance, if you, if you hear someone out loud, say you've got two, two research participants, they get some negative feedback and the other participants really models compassion. Oh, well, it's okay. I'm only human. You know, I'll try, I'll try harder and not the end of the world. And I really, you know, put in a good effort or whatever it is. Then the other person starts being more self-compassionate about themselves. So it is infectious. And one of the ways we learn is by having others, especially when they do it verbally out loud. It's great. I think, you know, maybe like we're, we're going for the humor. It's like, it's like the monk told me, you know, they come for the beer, but they're, they're staying for, you know, the substance, the, there's, there's something real about that character that, that sort of cuts through. And we love it. We, we watch it with our kids and it's funny. Um, I don't know if you're, you're up for it, Kristen, but if you'd be willing to maybe, um, offer and your, your website, by the way, has many things and I encourage people to check it out. Um, uh, res- uh, many resources about, you know, self-compassion, but also, like you said, it's a practice. So it's, it's, you know, you have a lot of meditations that are available there. I wonder if you would mind leading us in a short self-compassion meditation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what I'll, I'll, I'll um, lead is what we call the self-compassion break. So it's not a meditation in that it's not like something you do every morning when you wake up. It's actually something to be used when you're struggling with the real situation in the midst of your daily life. So basically when life happens. Um, and what it does is it brings in the three components of self-compassion explicitly. So that's mindfulness of the fact that we're struggling, 
a sense of common humanity, you know, that this we aren't abnormal, we aren't the only one, this is part of life. And then some kindness and really bringing in words of warmth and kindness. And you can see in real time how it changes the way you relate to what's happening. It won't make the problem go away, but it will help you cope with the problem and relate to it um, more productively. Cool. Okay, so, um, all right. So you might ask, if you're listening to this, you might close your eyes. I, I always close my eyes when I lead this practice. I have a hard time doing it with my eyes open. So just kind of just taking a moment to maybe get in touch with your body. Feel the weight of your body in your chair. Take a few deep breaths to let go of all that thinking and talking you've just been doing. And now I might invite you to think of something in your life that you're struggling with, right? It may be um, the challenge you're having in your family, your relationship. It may be something uh, in your work life or the pandemic, <laughs> right? Or politics. It could also be something about you personally, maybe something you're feeling badly about yourself for, or maybe you failed at something or made a mistake or feel inadequate. So just choose what seems most relevant to you. And by the way, please don't choose anything that feels overwhelming because it's really hard to learn new skills when we feel overwhelmed. So if you probably have a few things to choose from, choose something that's, you know, moderately challenging, but not overwhelming. So just calling this situation to mind. What's going on? So the first thing we want to do is use mindfulness to really just validate the difficulty and to see it clearly. Okay, so saying something to yourself like, this is really hard. Hard to feel this. Hard to experience this. Right. And then we also want to remind ourselves of the humanity of this. Right. So there's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way. Nothing abnormal. This is, this is part of life. It happens. Doesn't mean it should happen or we want it to happen, but you know, this is, this is part of the human experience. Things like this happen. But we also want to be kind and helpful to ourselves because it is hard, because it's challenging. So saying some words to yourself that you think um, are just what you need to hear. Right? And, the, and the way you know what that is, is you might imagine, well, what if you had a really good friend 
was going through this exact same situation. What might you say to your friend that would be helpful and supportive? And and it may depend on the situation. So for instance, if it's some sort of self-doubt, it may be something like, you know, I accept you just as you are. Or it's okay to be imperfect. Right? Everyone gets it wrong sometimes. It's okay. Or it may be words of um, more action and encouragement. Like, you know, I'm here to help. What do you need to help? I believe in you. I've got your back. Just, just think, what is it that you need to hear in this situation? Words of kindness, warm support, maybe tender or fierce or both. Just try giving yourself this message. It, it may feel a little awkward, just let it be so. Just try giving yourself these words of kindness and support. Okay, and then you can open your eyes. Um, So again, it's very simple. It's just intentionally bringing in mindfulness common humanity, um, and kindness. And I didn't do it in this exercise, but we also like to add in some physical touch as well. If you find a physical touch that works for you to support the practice, you can do that. You can do that in the bathroom. If you're having a horrible day at work, go to the bathroom and you take a self-compassion break. Or you can do it silently. You know, no one needs to know. This idea that we have the space and time to do those things, you know, we, we take, you know, no one would question somebody taking care of their appearance. You've got something in your teeth or you've yeah, got to exactly. adjust your makeup or something. But do we, you know, this type of, you know, your voice was you know, obviously you're a great teacher, Kristen, but the message is just so soothing. You know, even if, even if you're distracted, I have to say, even if you're, you're, you've got a lot going on, hearing that and getting into the practice of saying it, is so powerful. It's so moving. Thank you so much, Kristen Neff. Your book is Fear Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Is there a place where you want to tell people they can find you? Uh, Well, probably the easiest place is if you just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. Um, And I do have a lot of free practices, downloadable practices. I've got some videos, um, lots of research articles if you're interested. You can also um, take test your own self-compassion level if you want to get your get a score, see where you're at. If this is something you really want to put some time into. So that's really the place to start. And there's also a link there to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is really the training arm of what I do. It's a nonprofit I founded where you can get online training if you want. Great. The website is self-compassion, self-compassion.org. Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, or get access to courses, and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.